Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. I've done my traveling around and now I'm back and I'm ready to make some new episodes. So let's begin. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there, From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday, and right now, I'm doing a single episode every single day for 36 days straight to coincide with the election campaign, and I'm looking at every election in Canadian history. I have Coast to Coast, which looks at the building of the Transcontinental Railway, that comes out every single Thursday, and Canada's Great War which looks at Canada during the First World War, and that comes out every single Sunday. I do all these podcasts full-time, the writing, the research, everything. So, every dollar you give helps keep it all going, and I'll make sure I thank you directly on the air and throughout my social media. And of course, saying that, I'd like to say thank you to Lawrence Lewitton and Jordan Allard, both of whom donated money to the podcasts. I truly do appreciate it. Thank you. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. And of course, if you enjoy the episode and enjoy the podcast, please consider giving a five-star review. Every written five-star review gets a thank you directly on social media and on the air. Much is touted about Canada and the United States having the best relationship between two countries in the world. Our countries are said to be best friends, and we have the longest undefended border in the world. It is a rite of passage for any new president to come to Canada for an official visit, and while it may seem like a normal thing now, it took 56 years for the first president to come to Canada, and that was just because he was passing through. Sometimes these visits are friends getting together. Sometimes the leaders, they just couldn't stand each other. Today I'm looking at some of the visits by presidents to Canada, but I won't look at all, and as I will focus mostly on official visits to Canada, I'll also end the episode at the famous Shamrock Summit held in 1985. The first president to come to Canada was on July 26, 1923, when Warren Harding, coming back from his first visit to Alaska, stopped over in Canada to add another first to an accomplishment list after he became the first president to visit Alaska. Harding arrived on the USS Henderson at Pier A in Vancouver as the band played the Star Spangled Banner for him and his wife as they descended the gangway into Canada. Arriving on Canadian soil, he was greeted with a 21-gun salute from the 16th Brigade Canadian Field Artillery and a continuation of the Star Spangled Banner, but this time by a Canadian band. The president, sick and exhausted from his tour of America that had lasted several months by this point, took a motorcade to Stanley Park where he was greeted by thousands of Vancouver residents who lined the roadway. Upon his arrival at Stanley Park, a crowd of 40,000 people, which was one of the largest crowds he had seen on his entire tour, erupted in cheers as he took the stage. The huge support for the president was something that many reporters were not expecting, especially those from the United States. Harding would state, quote, You are not only our neighbor, but a very good neighbor, and we rejoice in your advancement and admire your independence no less sincerely than we value your friendship. End quote. After his visit to Stanley Park, 
Harding went to a luncheon at the Hotel Vancouver where 600 guests were in attendance, including the Premier of British Columbia, John Oliver. The day wasn't done yet, though, and Harding would then go to play golf after lunch, but he was soon exhausted, and he could only do six holes before his group went to the 18th hole. After some rest, he went to dinner in his honor, where he stated, quote, I am sure we share the same fundamental convictions about world peace and the human obligation to promote and maintain it. We may differ as to the practicability or effectiveness of this or that program, but we are in complete accord about the end to be attained. The president then shook hands for half an hour before he was too exhausted to continue and to return to his ship. With that, the first and only visit was finished and it would be a decade before another president would come to Canada. The trip came at a great cost to Harding, who would die only days later on August 2, 1923. In honor of his visit to Vancouver on September 16, 1925, the Harding International Peace Memorial was dedicated in Stanley Park, where he gave his speech only two years earlier. No president has ever visited Canada as much as Franklin Delano Roosevelt did during his time as President of the United States. From 1933 to 1944, he visited Canada a total of eight times, but only four of these times were official visits or ceremonies. He would visit three times for vacations at Campobello Island and once in Halifax as he stopped over on a return to the United States. He had also visited Canada prior to becoming president several times thanks to that vacation home on Campobello Island, but again I'm focusing only on visits of a sitting president. The first visit would be from June 29th to July 1st, 1933, when he came with his family to the island. The island had been in the Roosevelt family since 1883 when they turned it into their summer home. The island itself is located on the southern tip of New Brunswick, and the cottage was built in 1897 and given as a wedding present to Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt in 1908 by Franklin's mother Sarah. It was at this island in August of 1929 that Roosevelt was stricken with an illness that at the time was believed to be polio, and which would leave him paralyzed from the waist down. For Roosevelt, this was a serious blow as he could no longer stay for long periods of time at the island, which he always called the, quote, beloved island, end quote. All three times he visited the island as president, the visits lasted no more than three days and were only stopovers as he sailed in the area. When he arrived in 1933 on the Amberjack II, Everyone in the village was there to greet him, and the next day, half the village came out for a picnic at Roosevelt Beach. The next two visits on the island would occur from July 28th to 30th, 1936, and from August 14th to 16th, 1939. That would be the last visit to the island as the Second World War quickly ended any thoughts of vacations until his eventual death. Today, the Roosevelt Campobello International Park preserves the cottage and its connection to history, and the island is also connected to the mainland by the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial Bridge. The first official visit for Roosevelt would be on July 31, 1936, when he came to Quebec City and met with Governor General John Buchan, and this would be the first time that an American president met with not only the Prime Minister of Canada on Canadian soil, but the first time a sitting president met a Governor General on Canadian soil. The main focus of the visit was to discuss hydroelectric power between the two countries and tariffs. Upon Roosevelt's arrival by train, Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King would be there to greet him, and he would write later in the day in his diary, quote, He looked to me as he stood at the foot of his own gangway, a fairly tired man, 
and one who had been through a bit of brutal battering. Soon his face broke with a smile and the dark or somber expression was lost in the radiant one. End quote. In his speech at a ball held in his honor, Roosevelt would say, quote, In the solution of the grave problems that face the world today, frank dealing, cooperation, and a spirit of give and take between nations are more important than ever before. The United States and Canada, and indeed all parts of the British Empire, share a democratic form of government which comes to us from common sources. We've adapted our institutions on both sides of the border to our own needs and our own special conditions, but fundamentally, they are the same. End quote. Roosevelt returned to Canada on August 18, 1938, where he was presented with an honorary degree from Queen's University, and with Prime Minister King and Albert Matthew, the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, they dedicated the Thousand Island Bridge that connects southeastern Ontario with northern New York. While speaking at the university, Roosevelt would say, quote, We as good neighbours are true friends because we maintain our rights with frankness, because we refuse to accept the twists of secret diplomacy, because we settle our disputes by consultation, and because we discuss our common problems in the spirit of the common good. End quote. At this time, President Roosevelt is about to receive the honorary degree of Doctor of Laws from Queen's University. As the proceedings are already in progress, we take you now to Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. I present to you, Mr. Chancellor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to receive the degree of Doctor of Laws at your hands. In the name of this university, and by authority of Royal Charter, I admit you to the degree of Doctor of Laws with all its rights and privileges. Mr. Chancellor, Mr. Principal, Lieutenant Governor, Mr. Prime Minister. My newfound associates of Queen's University. <laughs> to the pleasure of being once more on Canadian soil, where I have passed so many happy hours of my life, there is added today a very warm sense of gratitude for being admitted to the fellowship of this ancient and famous university. I am glad to join the brotherhood which Queens has contributed and is contributing not only to the spiritual leadership for which the college was established, but also to the social and public leadership in the civilized life of Canada. At the bridge, he would give another speech, stating, quote, There will be no challenge at the border and no guard to ask a countersign. Where the boundary is crossed, the words must be, Pass friend. End quote. After a quick stop in Halifax en route back to the United States in 1939, Roosevelt would only visit Canada twice more, and both times were during the Second World War. The first was from August 17th to 25th, when he attended the first Quebec conference with Winston Churchill and Prime Minister King to discuss policy during the war. 
During the visit, he would address members of Parliament and the general public outside of Parliament Hill, becoming the first president to do so. During this visit, Prime Minister King's attendance was merely ceremonial. Churchill had asked that King be involved in discussions, but Roosevelt vetoed this because he believed that it would result in all the Allied nations demanding seats at future conferences. Despite this veto, Roosevelt actually quite liked King and considered him to be a friend. On August 25th, the last day of the conference, Roosevelt addressed 25,000 people at Parliament Hill stating, quote, Mr. King, my old friend, your course and mine have run so closely and affectionately during these many long years that this meeting adds another link to that chain. I've always felt at home in Canada, and you, I think, have always felt at home in the United States. End quote. Your Royal Highness, Mr. Prime Minister, and members of the Parliament of Canada, and all of you, my good friends and neighbors of the Dominion. It was exactly five years ago last Wednesday that I came to Canada to receive the high honor of a degree at Queen's University. On that occasion, one year before the invasion of Poland, three years before Pearl Harbor, I said, we in the Americas are no longer a faraway continent to which the eddies of controversies beyond the seas could bring no interest, no harm. Instead, we in the Americas have become a consideration to every propaganda office and every general staff beyond the seas. Roosevelt's last visit to Canada would be from September 11th to 16th, 1944, when he attended the second Quebec conference with Winston Churchill and the Allied Combined Chiefs of Staff. During this conference, King was once again the host, but he did not attend any key meetings. It would be another three years before a president visited Canada, and this time it was Harry Truman, who visited from June 10th to 12th, 1947, where he addressed Parliament and met with both Prime Minister King and the Governor-General. On June 10th, as Truman was arriving by train in Ottawa, King was stuck in the House of Commons before he had a chance to leave following a debate. According to the King in his diary, he had driven quite fast to get to Island Park Drive just as the train was coming in. He would write, quote, The Governor-General and others were waiting. They said they got pretty anxious. They thought the President would arrive and no Prime Minister. End quote. Upon meeting with Truman for the first time on Canadian soil, King would write, quote, The president was very hearty and natural in his greeting, end quote. At the drive from the train station to Rideau Hall, 40,000 people came out to cheer on the president. The Ottawa Journal would report, quote, The president himself seemed to feel the warm, friendly glow of the crowds. He was in smiling good form, matching with grin and wave each cheer, end quote. On July 11th, Truman would place lilies at the base of the National War Memorial, and he then said to the Veterans Minister, Ian McKenzie, quote, Truly a wonderful and memorable ceremony, end quote. After, Truman went to the U.S. Embassy, and then he walked with King to Parliament Hill, while the Peace Tower played Missouri Waltz, the favorite song of Truman. Speaking to Parliament, Truman would say, quote, Canada is a broad land, 
brought in mind and in spirit, as well as in physical expanse. We no longer think of each other as foreign countries. End quote. Mr. Prime Minister, honorable members of the Senate and members of the House of Commons of Canada. This is my first visit to Canada as President of the United States. And I am happy that it affords me the opportunity to address this meeting of the members of both houses of the Canadian Parliament. Here is a body which exemplifies self-government and freedom of nations of the great British Commonwealth. The history of the Commonwealth proves that it is possible for many nations to work and live in harmony and for the common good. I wish to acknowledge the many courtesies extended to me on this visit by the Governor General, Viscount Alexander, who paid me the honor of a visit in Washington a few months ago. His career as a soldier and as a statesman eminently qualifies him to follow his illustrious predecessor. For the courtesy of appearing before you, as, as, for, as for other courtesies, I am sure I am largely indebted to my good friend, Prime Minister Mackenzie King. The arrival of the president was such a big deal that the child of Ottawa couple P.Y. Villeneuve and his wife Yolanda was named Harry S. after the president. The final day of the visit by Truman was no less a big deal than the previous days. About 40,000 people once again cheered the president on during his tour of the capital, and he would say in a speech, quote, Ottawa has accorded me the most cordial reception of my life, end quote. Before leaving, Truman would give King a copy of his biography, and inside he wrote, quote, To my friend, the Prime Minister, Mackenzie King, end quote. Of course, Truman was not actually that close with King as Roosevelt had been, but he did have a respect for him. Truman would write later, quote, As a speaker and a writer, he is lacking the essential gifts of clarity, force, and ease. On the floor of the house, he is a past master of evasion in answering questions, but in rough-and-tumble debate, he scores more points than he loses. He is primarily a student. He is a bachelor and devotes a large part of his leisure to reading and abstract thinking. End quote. This would be the last time that King would meet a sitting president on Canadian soil. He would retire the following year and die only a few years later. Interestingly, on the day that Truman arrived, King also set a record for the longest time as Prime Minister in the British Commonwealth's history. Dwight Eisenhower would arrive in Canada for his first official visit on November 13, 1953. By this point, King had passed away and Louis Saint Laurent was Prime Minister. Eisenhower had also become president earlier that year on January 20th. The two men, by all accounts, actually got along quite well. It would be a stretch to call them close friends as they only saw each other four times in five years, but they reportedly shared a distinct respect for each other. They also shared a love of golf and would play around together in 1956 at the Augusta National Course. As was the case with Truman, Canadians came out in huge numbers to see the new president, amounting to 25,000 people. The crowd was especially enthralled with Mammy Eisenhower, 
the Ottawa Journal would write, quote, It took Memmi Eisenhower exactly one dippled smile and a hesitant wave of a green-gloved hand from the presidential train's observation platform to show waiting throngs that it's true what they say about Mammy. The famous warm friendliness of her personality broke through the official atmosphere. End quote. The purpose of the visit by Eisenhower was twofold. First, he wanted to promote a continental defense system, and second, he wanted to stimulate international trade between the two countries. Addressing Parliament, Eisenhower would state, quote, Beyond the shadow of the atomic cloud, the horizon is bright with promise. No shadow can halt our advance together. These days demand ceaseless vigilance. We must be ready and prepared. The threat is present. End quote. When Eisenhower once again returned to Canada, he was not met by Louis Saint Laurent, but by a new man who had just won the largest majority in Canadian history to that time, John Diefenbaker. Staying from July 8th to 11th, 1958, Eisenhower found a kindred spirit in Diefenbaker. Their relationship would be the most friendly since the days of King and Roosevelt. Both men shared a farming background in the western portion of their respective countries, and both had a passion for fishing. Upon arriving in Ottawa, Eisenhower was greeted with a 21-gun salute and 1,000 well-wishers at the airport. Greeted by His Excellency and Mr. and Mrs. Diefenbaker. Mr. and Mrs. Dulles. Mr. Thomas Stevens, Secretary to the President, and Colonel Robert Schultz, United States Army Military Aide to the President. During his drive from the airport to Rideau Hall, another 5,000 people lined the streets to wave at him. Diefenbaker would then shake hands with the president, stating, quote, Very happy to see you, end quote, to which the president responded, quote, Happy to be here, end quote. It was technically the fourth visit for Eisenhower, who had visited twice before becoming president when he was the chief of the U.S. Army staff in 1946 and the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe in 1951. The visit would be more relaxed than the others as well, with Eisenhower stating, quote, The visit this week is largely informal, the call of a neighbor, end quote. That is not to say that business was not discussed. The visit for Eisenhower this time again focused on the defense of North America from the perceived Soviet threat, as well as trade issues, the marketing of wheat, and future Ottawa-Washington cooperation. Addressing Parliament for a second time, Eisenhower became the first president to do so in Canadian history 
and the last until Ronald Reagan did so 30 years later. Eisenhower would state, quote, There must never be a final word between friends. We must never allow ourselves to become so preoccupied with the differences between our two nations that we lose sight of the transcendental importance of free world cooperation in winning the global struggle. End quote. After addressing Parliament, Diefenbaker and Eisenhower went fishing together at Harrington Lake, which would become the official summer residence of the Prime Minister of Canada the following year. The topic of the North American Aerospace Defense Command was the main point for the visit, and Diefenbaker would push Canada into being part of the Integrated Command. For Diefenbaker, though, this would result in backlash in Canada, and anti-American sentiment began to rise, which would come back to haunt him a few years later during his re-election campaign. Diefenbaker would have high praise for his friendship with Eisenhower, and he would write in his memoirs years later, stating, quote, I might add that President Eisenhower and I were from our first meeting on an Ike-John basis, and that we were as close as the nearest telephone, end quote. Eisenhower would visit one more time on June 26, 1959, to open the St. Lawrence Seaway with Queen Elizabeth II. If Diefenbaker and Eisenhower could be described as good friends, then the opposite would be the case for Diefenbaker and John F. Kennedy. Kennedy would only make one official trip to Canada, which he did from May 16th to 18th, 1961, and while it may seem from the outside to be a good and cordial visit, behind closed doors it was far from it. Things got off to a shaky start with Kennedy when he was announcing Diefenbaker's visit to Washington and his own visit to Ottawa, in which he kept calling Diefenbaker Diefenbaker. Diefenbaker would visit in February of 1961, and Kennedy found him to be boring and was annoyed by his constant anecdotes. He would tell his brother Robert that he, quote, never wanted to see that boring son of a bitch again, end quote. Nonetheless, Kennedy did make his trip to Ottawa, a symbolic gesture for the two countries, from May 16th to 18th, 1961. Arriving late in the day on May 16th, Kennedy would lay a wreath at the National War Memorial as presidents before him had done, before walking to Parliament Hill with Diefenbaker. This telecast comes to you from Parliament Hill in Ottawa, where again a large crowd has gathered to watch the arrival of the President of the United States to the Canadian Parliament buildings, where in a few minutes, he will address both houses of the Canadian Parliament. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation welcomes viewers in the United States for this special telecast from the Parliament buildings in Ottawa. President Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy have just arrived at the steps of the center block. They're greeted by Prime Minister Diefenbaker and Mrs. Diefenbaker and the leader of the government in the Senate, the Honorable Mr. Asseltine and Mrs. Asseltine. They were accompanied in the car by the United States Ambassador to Canada and Mrs. Merchant. The sun is shining very brightly. The temperature is crisp. As a matter of fact, yesterday it dropped above 30 degrees from a high of 85 on Monday. <laughs> this is Bing Whitaker speaking. The Houses of Parliament are in three main sections, the east, west, and center blocks. And 
The president and Mr. Diefenbaker have just moved in to the main door of the center block into Confederation Hall, where the speakers of both houses will be presented, as well as the leaders of the opposition in the Commons and Senate. Mr. Kennedy and Mr. Diefenbaker will go to the chambers of the Speaker of the House of Commons, and in a few minutes will enter the Commons, where his address will be given. People have been gathering outside for more than two hours, and undoubtedly will be able to hear the address on the public address system. One of the goals of the visit was to enlist Stephen Baker into a $500 million aid program to Latin America in the hopes of limiting the influence of Fidel Castro. Jackie Kennedy visited the National Gallery in the morning of May 17th, where she was greeted by 3,000 people who crowded 10 deep on the steps to the gallery to greet her. Kennedy would also address Parliament during his visit, stating, quote, Our historic task in this embattled age is not merely to defend freedom. It is to extend its writ and strengthen its covenant. Geography has made us neighbors. History has made us friends. Economics has made us partners. And necessity has made us allies. End quote. Kennedy would lobby privately with Diefenbaker to allow U.S. missiles and nuclear warheads in Canada, something the Canadian public was very against. Diefenbaker was at first inclined to do this, but after a mass petition arrived and a huge protest on Parliament Hill was organized, he decided against it. During the same visit, Kennedy also forgot a memo that detailed that he should push the Prime Minister on several issues, including the Warheads one. Diefenbaker then humiliated the American ambassador by showing him the memo. Diefenbaker would say of Kennedy, quote, He's a hothead. He's a fool too young, too brash, too inexperienced, and a boastful son of a bitch. End quote. The entire warhead issue would end up bringing down Diefenbaker's government, bringing in Lester B. Pearson, someone that Kennedy actually greatly respected and liked. Unfortunately, Kennedy would never live long enough to return to Canada to visit when Pearson became Prime Minister. It would be another five years before another president returned on an official visit, and this time it was Lyndon Johnson, the big Texan who would bully people to his side. He would not get along well with Pearson initially. Pearson was an elegant man with extensive experience as a diplomat, and he had his own successful way of getting things done. By the time Johnson arrived on August 21, 1966, Pearson had already been to America twice, and both times he had annoyed Johnson, especially when Canada refused to send troops to Vietnam, and instead Pearson called for a bombing halt while speaking at Temple University in America. Soon after, at Camp David in April 1965, Johnson grabbed Pearson by the lapels and screamed, quote, don't you come into my living room and piss on my rug. End quote. During the visit, which was at the Campobello International Park, Johnson helped dedicate the park that had been used by Roosevelt decades earlier. He would then have informal talks with Pearson, of which Vietnam was the main focus, with Johnson wanting a just settlement to end the war, and Pearson wanting a reduction in the fighting. Both men would also attend St. Anne's Anglican Church in an armored car a show of the changing times when presidents would drive through Ottawa in an open-top convertible to cheering Canadians. Despite the early rocky relationship, by this point, both men had a cordial relationship. At a luncheon, Pearson would say to the press, quote, I have an important announcement. The president had two pieces of pie, end quote. Johnson would reply, quote, Delicious pie, but they were very small pieces, end quote. After Johnson gave a speech in which he reiterated the need for other countries to help in Vietnam, Pearson stated, quote, 
The friends of the U.S., and there is no closer friend than Canada, may not always agree with all the expressions of American policy and power, but they must all acknowledge that the policy is no design against the freedom or welfare of any other people. End quote. Johnson would again return to Canada on May 25, 1967, attending Expo 67 and meeting privately with the Governor-General and Pearson. By the time the next presidential visit came along, it would be five years, and it was Richard Nixon who would become the first president in ten years to address Parliament. Nixon would be terribly mismatched with Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Trudeau was charming and flamboyant who wore his hair longer in the style of the time, while Nixon was a staunch conservative, but... Nixon also respected Trudeau's intelligence, stating to his chief of staff after a visit to the White House, quote, that Trudeau is a clever son of a bitch, end quote. Of course, he also called him a pompous egghead. By the time Nixon arrived in Ottawa on April 13, 1972 for a two-day visit, Canada and the United States were at odds over Vietnam, trade issues, the Canadian dollar, and Canadian fears over the cultural imperialism of the Americans. The visit was seen as damage control for the issues between the countries, including the fact that Nixon had called Japan America's largest trading partner, which was actually not the case. Nixon was not popular in Canada at the time. This was seen when the Secret Service hosed down the snowbanks at Parliament Hill to prevent snowballs from being thrown at the president. Nixon would visit Parliament where he was met with throngs of protesters urging a stop to the Vietnam War. The Secret Service were also told they could not have firearms in the House of Commons as per tradition, leaving only the sergeant-at-arms with his sword to protect the president. Reports that the Secret Service would be armed in the House of Commons came to light the day before, and John Diefenbaker condemned it publicly. Deliveries of food to Parliament were also banned, and an order of 200 takeout chicken lunches had to be ordered for the security and RCMP outside the building. All cleaning staff at Parliament were also given the day off with pay as well. In the evening after the address to Parliament, Nixon would attend a dinner with Prime Minister Trudeau, where he would toast Trudeau's new son, born on Christmas Day 1971, Justin. He would say in his toast, quote, Tonight, we'll dispense with the formalities. I'd like to toast the future Prime Minister of Canada to Justin Pierre Trudeau, end quote. As it turned out, Nixon was exactly right about that. A marked change of mood inside for the signing of the Great Lakes Cleanup Agreement in the Chandelier Confederation Room on Parliament Hill. It culminates eight years of effort to reverse the trend to slow death in some of the lakes. Today, it's predicted that in five years, people will once more swim in the now-polluted areas of Lakes Ontario and Erie, and trout will abound again. After the signing, it was off to the airport and home for President Nixon. Outside, a small but vocal demonstration was building up as Canadian and American leaders inside toasted the new agreement in Champagne. These demonstrators are part of the movement for the liberation of Canada a group pushing for economic independence.
Showing their distaste for American symbols as well as American presidents, the stars and stripes were ripped from a flagstaff and tossed to the crowd below. Business done, President Nixon and his party started toward the airport and arrived there with little ceremony and no incidents. It was only then that more demonstrators from Toronto, Montreal, and even some Americans arrived on the hill. They'd been delayed by city police. Today's protests aimed at a wide variety of ills polarized on Vietnam and paper mache figures mocked Canadian complicity in that war. After Nixon resigned as president due to the Watergate scandal and his secret tapes were released, it was discovered that Nixon had called Trudeau, and I apologize for my language, called him an asshole. This didn't seem to bother Trudeau, who said, quote, I've been called worse things by better people, end quote. Trudeau would have generally good relationships with presidents Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, but neither would visit Canada during their presidencies, the first time presidents didn't visit since before Roosevelt. Another man would, though. Ronald Reagan would visit Canada twice during Trudeau's time in office, both times in 1981, and then he would visit again on March 17, 1985. Now, while Reagan made five visits to Canada as president, three when Brian Mulroney was prime minister, I'm going to focus on only one, the most famous presidential visit of all, and the one I'm going to end this episode on, the Shamrock Summit. Reagan and Mulroney had a very good relationship. Reagan was impressed with Mulroney, finding him more thick-skinned than other young leaders, and both leaders were of Irish descent and both got along extremely well with the other. Which brings us to March 17th to 18th, 1985. Given the name Shamrock Summit, Due to it partially being on St. Patrick's Day and both men having that Irish ancestry, the summit was seen by officials on both sides as a way to mend the fractured relationship that had come between the two countries during the 1970s and early 80s. It was not simply a friendly get-together, though. There was business to conduct, including military planning, upgrading the dew line with modern electronics, the signing of an agreement to control acid rain, and the signing of the Canada-U.S. Declaration on Goods and Services, which was the first major step towards the 1988 Free Trade Agreement. Both men supported free trade, and both had similar agendas. While the leaders got along, 4,000 demonstrators calling for action on acid rain were located around the city along the route that Reagan's entourage would take. Memos released years later showed that Mulroney did not want Canada to be seen as subservient to the United States, that the two leaders were on the same wavelength, and the revelation that the Acid Rain Agreement was signed as part of a desire to, quote, throw a bone, end quote, to the Canadians. The most famous part of the summit, though, which was held in Quebec City, was a television gala attended by Mulroney, Reagan, and their wives on March 17th. The gala included the four individuals singing When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. President Reagan also wore a green tie stating that he was green with envy over the massive majority in Parliament that Mulroney had won in the previous election. It all began traditionally enough, a trumpet fanfare for a couple of politicians proud of their Irish roots, out with their wives for a night at the theatre. The President and Mrs. Reagan, the Prime Minister and Mrs. Mulroney, were entertained by a galaxy of Canadian talent as multicultural as a country.
There was dancing by La Grande Ballet Canadienne. Acadian folk singer Edith Butler. A performance by Toronto's famous people players. And a special appearance by Canadian astronaut Mark Garneau. But this, after all, was St. Patrick's Night, and the evening wouldn't have been complete without a rendition of When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. When a couple of professional Irishmen hear that, well, they couldn't decline the invitation to join in. Mulroney and Reagan center stage on St. Patrick's Night in Quebec. And this solo performance by the Prime Minister. Sure they steal your heart away. This will undoubtedly be the most lasting image of Quebec's Shamrock Summit. Larry Stout, CBC News, Quebec City. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the presidential visits in Canadian history. Next week, I'm looking at a Canadian legend himself, Rick Hansen, but specifically, the Man in Motion Tour. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Again, if you like, you can support the podcast through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. And I'd like to say thank you to all of my wonderful patrons. And if I mispronounce any names, I do apologize. Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, one anonymous person who I really appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, and Iris Gray. Information from Library and Archives Canada, Maclean's, Wikipedia, Canadian Encyclopedia, The American Presidency Project, Franklin D. Roosevelt Day by Day, Policy Options, Ottawa Citizen, Montreal Gazette, CBC, and the Calgary Herald. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.